It's about you, your health, your family, and your community. This is Sunday Morning Magazine with your host, Rodney Lear. And good morning. Hope you're having a blessed weekend. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Morning Magazine. Remember, more information about the show can be found on our Facebook page. Visit Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Head there now and like us there now. You can actually join the conversation there as well. This morning, it's all about parenting. We're joined by a panel of three parenting experts. We're joined by our good friend, Cimbria Hess. Cimbria is a licensed family and marriage therapist. We're also joined by Renee Matson. She is a parenting coach with Child and Bloom. Rounding out our panel is Gene Blair. He's with the Family Nurturing Center. It's our pleasure to welcome Cimbria, Renee, and Jean to Sunday Morning Magazine. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good, good. Now, Cimbria, I always say Cimbria is our resident therapist here on Sunday Morning Magazine. Remind our listeners about what you do and remind us about your practice. I work in a practice in Anderson Township. Um, It's called Anderson Hill Psychotherapy and been there quite a while. And you can get in touch with me at 513-233-0020. All right, Renee. Sure. Um, I'm Renee Matson, and I um, have two roles. I am a faculty member at Xavier University, where I work in the school of special education or the school of education in special education, um, supporting students who are going to be special educators out in the field. Um, I'm a, the field coordinator there, and I also own um, a business called Child in Bloom, and we are parent coaches going into homes, working privately with families and churches, businesses, helping parents learn tools on how to get kids to function better in their day. And right. you can reach us at childandbloom.com or at Xavier. You can reach me there, too, if you ever needed to, if you're looking into special education. All right. Mr. Gene. Hey, my name is Gene Blair, and uh, I have a couple of roles as well. One of them is with the Family Nurturing Center, and uh, I do training there. And one of the programs in particular that is dear to my heart is a father's program that we have and that we take throughout the state of Kentucky. And uh, the other role that I have is with DCCH Center for Children and Families, where I train foster and adoptive parents. So look at this. We have the experts here. They're going to answer all of our questions about parenting because there are so many. But let me ask you this, Renee. You brought up something really interesting by what you do. You're a parent coach. How receptive are parents to coaching? Well, um, we know parents are, they're adult learners, right? Mm -hmm. And so the coaching idea is something that we try to train our teachers at Xavier on is that a lot of times you'll sit side by side an adult and kind of meet them where they are. Um, our goal is usually to find what's most important to them and kind of ease them through whatever they're working on so they get from one place to the next, but at their, on their terms. So that's what that coach idea is. And, when they come to us or we meet with them, it seems like, for the most part, parents want to grow. They want to learn one new skill. And if we just do it one step at a time at their pace, their capacity, they make progress and they like it. Okay. So let's start off here. Let me ask you guys this. Do most parents, do you, how do you think most parents would rate themselves? They think that they're killing this parenting thing, <laughs> that they're totally getting it right, or they're like me, like, what am I doing? I think most everyone thinks, what am I doing? Um, I think this is the first generation where because of digital and media life, um, what our parents did and how we got role model doesn't necessarily become very effective for this generation of kids. And so I think everyone's kind of struggling to try to just do their best in a pretty hard situation. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I think that we need to take a breath sometimes with parenting and just realize there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Mm -hmm. We're going to learn through our mistakes. 
and we're not going to mess our kids up because we so, sometimes blow it as moms and dads. All right. I'm feeling good already. Yeah. That, that helps me <laughs> out. All right. Renee, your thoughts. Same thing. I just feel like we are making progress. Little bits of progress. It, something didn't go right, right today. No big deal. Maybe we'll try something else tomorrow. There's lots of ways to do this. What's important to you? What does your child need? All those things, kind of taking all those things into consideration. And we're we're going to do better tomorrow maybe than we did today, but we'll never be perfect. And I usually say to my clients, you could come to my life and watch me and you'd be like, hey, what did you know every time she does that, you do this and then this behavior? Okay. <laughs> so we could all use a little. I mean, we're always, people are always thinking about, can I do that a little bit better? Good. So I'm not alone. Now, Simbria, you alluded to this earlier, but let's talk more about this. You say that parents in the current culture are not as powerful as in prior generations. Explain that. I would agree. I think because up until the kid hits, I would say elementary, mid-elementary toward junior high, um, prior generations, the parents and the immediate family were probably the most powerful influence. And now I think it's more the peer culture around them and what they believe the peer culture is doing or not doing um, because they can watch it and see it. Um, So our kids very much feel on stage once they enter having a cell phone in their hand or having an iPad in their hand. Um, They can watch what everyone else is doing, and that influences what they think is right and wrong. It influences how they see the world, and it makes it harder for parents because they're no longer the sole steady influence like we used to be. Um, And the immediate family no longer gets to serve in that role. It's more the pop culture around them and what they think the pop culture thinks. Gene, you are nodding your head in approval. I agree as far as when you see kids today, they're – uh, even there, it's funny. My son, he'll tell me, Dad, I know this is right. I heard it on, I saw it on the internet. Mm. It's just like not everything you read on the internet is factual. Even when it comes sometimes with teachers, it's like, no, Dad, you're wrong. The teacher is right. And so, in a sense, because of some of those societal factors, parents have lost some of that position and status, I think, in a child's life. Now, what do we need to do as parents to open the doors of communication to make it easier for our children to open up and be comfortable enough to talk to us about anything? Because, you know, I've experienced this personally. There's nothing more disheartening as a parent to find out your child was struggling with something and they could not come to you. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. uh, There's a couple of things I try to tell parents for sure. And I I, um, that if we kind of spend our life with our children correcting, 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 it's really hard to connect. So you might need to do more connecting, connecting so that you can correct. And that connecting is those little moments throughout the day. It could be physically connecting, literally like a hand on the back. I'm here. I'm with you. It could be I look looking you in the eye. And in this day and age, even parents are having an issue. They're not. They're on their phone. They're not really present. And the kids know. And the research shows that too, that kids are seeing that you're not paying attention to me. And so showing physically showing that you're there, you're present, and you're with them, and doing those little connection moments makes it easier when I do have to have that kind of correction conversation or I, I do want them to share with me. It's just easier if I've had those connection moments. Also, walking and talking or driving and talking is going to be so much better than looking them in the eye and having that serious lecture kind of moment, especially teenagers and boys in particular, just to go for a walk with me instead of look me in the eye. And that's interesting because we just got a dog maybe about two months ago. And so now my my boys, they'll walk with me. And sometimes it's just one on one. And my youngest one, I noticed 
He's just he's just talking, 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 mm-hmm. talking, talking. So walking is good and having a pet and walking a pet mm-hmm. can be good as well. What else can we do here? Um, what can we do to help our children open up and be able to come to us and talk to us about anything? That connecting piece, just to add to it, is listening, listening, listening. And we kind of set the stage for that when kids are young. You know, kids go through that stage where they ask us everything and it just drives us crazy. But we don't realize we're setting a precedent when we take the time to listen to what they have to say. You know, actively listening, make the eye contact where we're not just, you know, nodding off on our devices or technology, where we're asking questions. Kids are learning, hey, what I think, what I feel matters. And if we can start that when kids are young, as they get older, guess what? The doors of communication are already open. Mm -hmm. But we have to make that concerted effort to really listen. All right, Sambria? I would say that use those weird moments in your life that seem ritualistic and routine. Um, I noticed with my kids, we always did the same bedtime routine from the time they were born until – um, they wouldn't let me do it anymore when they became older teens. Um, but to me, those ritual moments, like at bedtime when you're tucking them in, when you're sitting next to them, you know, brushing their hair, or you're doing something with them that are more quiet, boring moments technically, um, those are the moments when the kids are more likely to talk. And I notice with most of my kids and the kids that I talk to at work, um, right before they go to sleep is where their day plays out in their head. And so the things that are on their mind, if you're quiet and peaceful and with them in that moment, not necessarily trying to have a significant conversation, but just, oh, and this happened today. And well, what was that like for you? And not make that a time where you're correcting, like Renee said, literally just use that opportunity that's part of the normal party of your regular day. Ritual moments are a really good time to have those kind of talks and give you opportunity that you probably won't get any other place. Okay. Good, good. I think simply, sorry, simply using that phrase, I hear you. Mm. And I think that's good, good for parents to practice using that phrase. Um, just it's almost like a cue to them. Like, I hear you. I see you. I see you're doing this. I hear you're saying this. It sounds like you feel like just saying kind of key phrases like that might train your brain to liter- to be there to hear them. Because they may say that one thing that helps you realize, oh, that's where they are. And in case you're just tuning in this morning, all morning long, we're talking about parenting. We're talking to three parenting experts. We're talking to Simbria Hess. Simbria is a licensed family and marriage therapist. We're also speaking to Jean Blair. Jean is with the Family Nurturing Center. And rounding out our panel is Renee Matson. She is a parenting coach with Child in Bloom. For more information, you can visit our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Head there now. Like us there now. And you can also join the conversation there as well. Now, let's talk about the child's perspective on parenting. Simbria, you counsel many children and teens. What is it that kids wish their parents knew about how their parenting techniques and styles affect them? I think what I hear the most regularly is that the the children wish the parent would comment on what they get right. Um, a, a lot of the kids that I talk to, especially adolescents and teens, will say the only time they talk to me is when I got a C. Um, they didn't notice the two times I got an A or they didn't notice the time that I helped my neighbor pick up something, but they noticed that I didn't do my chores this morning and they yelled at me about that. And I think kids really do want to be acknowledged for the things they get right. And I think as a parent, it's hard because you're just doing your best to get through the day and I've even had parents say to me, well, of course they know that I think they're doing well. And then I'll talk to their child and their child will go, really? Because that's news to me because they don't say it or I don't hear it enough. 
Um, and there is that weird little piece of research that our brain latches on to negative better than positive. So you have to kind of make sure that I think the stats something like 10 to 1 um, for every one negative thing. You have to do 10 positive so the brain actually catches it and remembers it. And But with parenting, that's what I hear from kids the most is they don't seem to comment on what I get right. And so that seems to me to be something that from a kid's report card point of view, parents <laughs> don't always get right. Okay. Gene? Um if I was to ask my youngest son who's still at home, he would tell me that uh, probably the one thing he wished that I would do is that when I'm disciplining him, some, something along those lines, that I would talk less. I use too many words. Oh, okay. And, and sometimes we need to say what we need to say and then stop. But we kind of like to go on and on and on. Guilty here. <laughs> okay. I, can I say something too, just to piggyback on this? Because both of those are exactly what I would say too. I think we talk so much. Uh, I try to talk to parents about three to five words at a time, especially in the middle of a temper tantrum. And teenagers have temper tantrums too. Yes. It can be a quick phrase and a pause. I think the thing we end up doing is we lecture for it. Like I call it paragraph talking. We just go on and on with descriptors and emotion. And then I get more emotional. They get more emotional. If I can talk in quick phrases, slow phrases that are quick in that they're only three to five words and a purposeful pause, it's going to calm me down. And I know I'm guilty of this, but I've learned I, I can turn it off because I, I can just say to myself, wait a minute, it's just too much. Just he knows what you're trying to say. Let it go. <laughs> so I'm guilty of that, but I'm learning to pull back the reins. And I see that in myself. Now, let me ask you guys this. Now, we talked about that there's no such thing as a perfect parent. But do we sometimes expect our children to be perfect? Oh, who's going to talk mm -hmm. about that? All right, I'll jump in here. Uh, okay. I think that's one of the things we really have to evaluate. Mm -hmm. Do we have realistic expectations of kids? Mm -hmm. And kids have – they're so unique. Some of them have different strengths, different needs. And, um, you know, it's the way the world works uh, – you know, we have grading systems. We have to categorize and label. But um, I think sometimes we have to adjust as parents. You can have two to three children in your home that you're parenting, and you have to parent them differently. You have to score those kids and how they're doing and their progress differently. If not, they're going to get frustrated, and you're going to get frustrated. I think that a huge part of it, too, is just the idea of they're in bloom, they're in progress, they're, ma they're making progress, little bits here and there, and that they're not going to be perfect because I wasn't perfect when I was 14. I'm not perfect now. So I'm learning they're lear It's a, that we're learning. We're all in process. And it's um, like in terms of the grading parts of it, just to catch kids being good, like Cimbria said, just I used to put 10 pennies in my pocket in my classroom, and I just... Actually, I was talking about this earlier, but 10 pennies in my pocket, and those 10 pennies were for me to train my brain to catch those kids in my classroom oh, being good. good. Because I was, it's easy for me to catch them being bad, but it was harder for me to catch all the good things that were happening. And for parents to just be aware of, am I calling them out when I see what they're supposed to be doing, that they're doing it? So, Simbria, you counsel teens and young people. Do they feel that pressure, that pressure to live up to their parents' expectations because parents, again, expect them to be perfect? Absolutely. The wonderful thing is, is what's, what's the same about kids in this generation as priors, they want approval. Um, and they want to earn approval by doing things right and by things that make sense to them. 
Um, they don't want to earn approval by something that they can't accomplish. So if you have a kid that's not good at math they, and they're just not going to be great at it, they have to work really hard at it, they want approval for the things that they are good at. It Maybe they're a better reader. Maybe they're better um, in the house at helping. Maybe they're better at other things. Um, but I think what most kids want is their parents' approval. They want to be thought of as a good kid. They want to be acknowledged for being loved and being cherished and that they're good the way they are um, with tweaking improvement as we go just like adults have to do. Um, but, yeah, I think that's something that all children want is like to feel like they're approved of. Yeah, not only at home but I think with my kids as they've gone through school, there's so much peer pressure that they're under, that sometimes that becomes the all in all, you know, can I measure up in this? And when you're always trying to live by other people's measurements and in comparison and grades, you just don't come on a good side there. And uh, to be able to help reframe that for kids, I think is important to where they're not, you know, they're understanding who they are, what their strengths are, what their needs are, and they're able to talk about them in those terms. And also able to see like how they've grown, how look at look back, like look at where you've come and kind of um, listening to, like when we hear them to say, here's where we were and we're making progress and that they see it. They begin to see it that I, I suffered through. I you know bounced back out of that and I'm making progress and acknowledging that instead of like, oh, you messed up again, you messed up again. But literally saying you did a little bit better. You're, you're doing better every day. Okay. And so how do children feel about parents? You know, do we overreact on things? Do we, are we treating them fairly? Are they getting punished the right consequences for the things that they do? I know they're, I'm sure they're going to think, oh no, he's being too hard on me. But as parents, are we coming down too hard? Are we punishing? And how do children feel about that? Do they feel like parents are always too hard on them? The punishment doesn't fit the crime. What are you hearing when you talk to young people? I think I hear both. I hear some kids that think their parents are absolutely pretty fair and reasonable. And then I'll hear other kids that they think their parents are overly harsh. Um, and again, what what you said, Jean, that they repeat and they talk too long and they tend to lecture and that that the lecture isn't helpful. Um, and But I think as a rule, I think most kids think that when they're being punished, the family's doing the best they can. Um, I think the difference is, is what it, what the punishment means to the kid, or does the kid see that as um, helpful to them, or do they just see it as my mom and dad are mean? Um, and I think that's one of those things about trying to, as you're a parent, learning the difference between giving a consequence, like which is a teaching tool directly linked to what the kid did. So trying to get them to do what you want as opposed to just a punishment. You're punished because I don't like how you acted today doesn't really teach a kid anything and can be pretty overwhelming from a child point of view because they don't even understand what they did that was wrong. Um, so that difference between punishment and consequences, most people don't enjoy being punished. They are pretty reasonable about consequences, though, meaning if it feels like it's logical, it's natural. Yeah, I did that. Yes, that makes sense. Um, you know, if you're on your phone after bedtime and we told you not to do that, you don't get your phone the following night. That makes sense. You're on your phone after bedtime and we take your phone away for the rest of the month because we're mad at you. Doesn't necessarily make sense. Mm-hmm. One of the things I try to talk to parents about is in the moment, if I'm upset about something, some behavior I see, I might throw out a really large consequence. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to start small. <laughs> that, that You don't have to go big because if you go big, you might lose your leverage. Mm. So don't go big. Go small. And actually, the uh, children are begging for boundaries. And it feels safe. 
if I know she said this, she means it, it's going to happen, then they know what to expect and they know that you do it every time. And that they also might know that one of the things that for sure I try to talk to parents about is consequences doesn't mean punishment. It's not the same. Consequence means what happens next. So you choose this, then you choose what happens next, positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And um, helping kids to understand that and maybe talking in those terms of choices and then what happens next instead of consequences or punishment, it really helps families understand that and let kids kind of feel the consequence or what happens next. I think as parents, we have to know what our hot buttons are because our (laughs) kids know. They know what buttons to push to get a reaction or response out of us. And I know... Speaking as a father and and working with men, a lot of times, for instance, our hot button is is if we feel disrespected. You disrespect Mm -hmm. us, man, we're like the drama. We're up there immediately. And I think if we're aware of what buttons we have, then we can be a little proactive to not overreact in the moment. But it's hard. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to think that through a little bit before, before you get into the heat of the moment. All right. Good point. Good point. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine all morning long. We're talking about parenting. We're talking to three parenting experts. We're talking to Simbria Hess. Simbria is a licensed family and marriage therapist. We're talking to Renee Matson. She is a parenting coach with Child and Bloom. Also speaking to Gene Blair. He is with the Family Nurturing Center. For more information on the show, you can join our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. Head there now, like us there now, and join the conversation there. Now, let's talk about this. This is really critical, I think a critical piece. And we touched on this all just about every time we talked about parenting this morning. But let's talk about parenting kids in the age of social media. Okay, Simbrit, let's start with something that you said earlier. You said, and I thought this was really interesting, you said that when kids are on social media and things like that, they feel like they're on stage. I consider that they're on stage because they never get to rest. They have to come. They get to compare themselves to everyone all the time, twenty four seven, and and they don't get to rest their minds. They don't get to rest with their family, and they don't get to rest against what they think everyone else is doing or not doing. What they got included in, what they didn't get included in. But that on stage feeling is a normal part of adolescence that now is amplified. Um, you know, it's normal for an adolescent to feel like everyone knows that they have a zit on the middle of their nose. And that they feel very like noticed before that. But now it's not just that. Now it's everything they do, what they're doing in their off time, what they're doing when they're home, what they're doing with their friends. And that sense of being on stage, I think, makes them compare, compare, compare in a way that is incredibly stressful and anxiety provoking that I don't think prior generations and I know I didn't have to put up with as a child. I got to go home and rest. And and this generation doesn't get to do that. And I think it makes parenting more difficult because your child feels like they're constantly being critiqued. So you can say a small thing to your kid as you walk by him in the living room, and to them it's the final straw of the critique that they felt all day long, and a parent doesn't necessarily understand it because that's not what we had growing up. So we don't understand why would they be hyper-reactive if I say, hey, I don't think that top fits you anymore, and suddenly they say they, the, your child believes all these things because they've been looking at Images and pictures of what their friends look like or what they, what models look like or things that are unrealistic. And I don't think parents always are aware of what that constant internal critic is like for this generation of kids because we didn't have it. Okay. And one thing that I thought was really interesting, I brought this same point up to teens. I did a show, I did a teen panel show a few months back, and I had four teens 
and they didn't see it that way. I asked them specifically, I said, you know, when you're online, do you constantly feel like, you know, does that cost you to feel less than or whatever? And do people only put on the positives online? Because I think that's another thing. Everybody likes to look so rosy and, and we, who knows what they're going through, mm-hmm. but online it's look at this. It's so beautiful. And my life is so perfect and so beautiful. And it causes children to compare as you said, but I don't think young people see it. I asked all four of those kids on this team panel and all of them disagreed with me. They said people do post negative stuff online, which is true, but they don't see it like that the way we're seeing it. And they're way more used to it than we are too. And I actually think sometimes we're more sensitive to it too, just because we're just so shocked by it. They, they're, they've been some of the kids that are really been raised on this since they were 10. They had a phone or an iPod or something. They're very used to it, maybe more than we are even. But I don't think it makes it better or worse if they're not used, to, if they don't think it's it's still there. It may just they may not be aware of it. And I also feel like one way, I mean, just this sounds maybe too simple, but just our job as parent becomes life without that so that what are we doing in creating in our family time away like to create those breaks um, that we have things we do regularly we have time we spend together regularly that doesn't involve everybody else and just us um, that we have time away from social media because they can always have it and whether that means putting boundaries in the car when we're driving in the car nobody's on your phone I mean in this day and age I could pick up six kids in my car to take them someplace and they're all on their phone. So in our car, no phones. You, you, I want you to look and talk to me. You're, I'm an adult. Your kid's in my car. Let's, let's talk. Or talk to your friends if you don't want to talk to me. Um, but like kind of putting boundaries around it so that they do have moments without technology. And I think that we as parents have to model yeah. that type of behavior. Kids need to see us sometimes put the phone down, tech the technology, and, and park it for a while. And, you know, as a family... Is there anything wrong with occasionally, you know, on Sunday morning, let's unplug everybody, not just the kids. You have to listen to my show first. Then you can unplug. (laughs) There you go. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. But I understand what you're saying. Go ahead. No, I I just think that that's something to get buy-in from our kid. We have to model it. They have to see it in us, that that's something that we value. And uh, that's the one thing about being a parent. And we don't like this all the time. A lot of the behaviors that we see from our kids – it's right from us. We've modeled it. Okay. The other thing, too, is developmentally, kids have not changed. Development hasn't changed. And um, so we have to think about where they are developmentally and what they can handle. And we're giving this out in the smallest doses instead of here's a phone with 20 apps. Mm-hmm. Here's a phone and here's a two apps. that We're going to downsize the apps on this and, and have you practice it. Just really understanding that you actually are in charge of this phone. You own it and you can make boundaries around it. And I think one thing is you have to know your child's maturity level in terms. We haven't talked about this yet, but when should you give them the phone or whatever? We decided with my youngest son not to give him a phone, but we have he has the other device where you can do everything. You can FaceTime, but you can't call. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I we figured out he wasn't quite mature enough for this piece of technology. You're talking about being left out of the parenting loop. He and his buddy decided that. Oh, you can come over to my house. Sure, just walk on over. My son says, "Um, can so-and-so come over? I'm like, well, let me think about that. Let me talk to your mom. Ding dong. The boy's here. They had, between the two of them, they had communicated to each other through text, 
come on over. It's no problem. I mean, you know, I'm, so I thought, okay, that happened one time. Just, you know, okay, miscommunication, we're off. Let's explain to him you can't do that, you know. Talk to mommy and daddy first, blah, 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 blah. Three weeks later, <laughs> the same thing. So I, <laughs> personal experience tells me sometimes they're just not mature enough for the new piece of technology mm-hmm. that's in their hands. And even though we decided not to give them the phone, he could text, and that was just as good. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it means they still need social practice. They need to practice skills that we may have automatically gotten when we were kids. We talked on the phone a lot. We um, rang doorbells. I have a, I have a perfect story. My daughter, um, she's waiting to go into a house to visit a friend, and she's not ringing the doorbell. Ring the doorbell. <laughs> she's like, I don't have to. I texted. Uh, yeah. They're coming to the door. Oh, oh, that's so, true. so I mean, yeah. it seems like such a silly social skill that, of course, she would know how to do, but... This day and age, maybe they missed that skill and that it's our job as parents to maybe kind of force those skills that aren't automatically being taught anymore. Okay. Now the proverbial boyfriend does not have to blow the horn now. He can just text. So, you know, we don't have to even worry about that anymore. Right. Right. So let's talk about this. This is kind of scary. And I want to talk. um, Sembria, we were doing some prep for this show a, a few weeks ago. And you told me something that was really alarming to me. We talked you talked about how in high school. Most kids have either sent or received naked photos of their peers. Correct. Let's talk about that. Scary. The weirdest thing is, is kind of like what you said earlier about social media and them not thinking being on stage all the time in comparison. Um, I think most kids don't find it peculiar anymore. Um, They just assume it's part of what happens in their life. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why you have to be aware of what your kid's doing as you're teaching them to use um, the phones and the technology and what they have access to, that not everyone's going to use it well. Uh, there was a time when my daughter was, I think she was probably a freshman in high school. We were on the way to Kings Island. I had six girls in my van, and we were taking them to Kings Island, and they all start doing this weird high-pitched giggle. And I wonder what the deal is, and I see the phone being passed around, and the giggle follows it, and I'm watching it in the rearview mirror wondering what the heck that's about. And the phone comes close enough, so I kind of snagged it. And it was a picture that I didn't want to see um, of something. And I hit, <laughs> tried to drive and hit delete <laughs> and be a bad model. And then the girls all start saying, oh, that's not weird. And what? when we stopped at a light, I was like, I turned around and was like, girls, what the heck was that? <laughs> and was kind of horrified. And all these girls who I considered to be pretty normal, nice kids, all were like, oh, yeah, that happens. Um, and, and I was like, well, do you think that's normal? Like, do you think that's reasonable behavior? Cause I don't find that to be reasonable behavior. That is not how a boy should introduce himself to you. Um, oh um, God. but the girls really didn't think much of it. And the girls that I talked to in the office and the boys, they're like, yeah, that happens. That happens. And it's kind of a shoulder shrug to them. To me, it's a bit horrifying, um, because I worry that all that's going to follow you the rest of your existence. Um, or where does that go exactly? Or, and, and it's not legal. Um, but I think it's something that's a regular part of having a piece of technology in your hand that can transmit photos now. And yes, I think that's a boundary that it bumps up their sexual exposure in a way that I wish didn't exist. Um, I don't know how to undo it. Um, I truly don't. I've thought about it a lot. I can't figure out how you undo it. I think the best you can do is try to educate your kids and your family on what you think is acceptable boundaries and norms and what's acceptable so ex, you know opposite sex behavior you know is that a reasonable way for a boy to tell you that i like you if a if a boy asks you for a nude is it reasonable for you to reply with it 
And I think that's something that we have to have those hard conversations in a pretty non-judgmental way and hope that what we tell our kids sticks, um, that they understand that from my point of view, that's not okay. You should expect more. You should expect more. They should have to talk to you. They should have to have a conversation with you, not with their body and not with a picture. Um, but you can go on any Instagram site and troll across and you see picture after picture of people posing in front of their bathroom mirror, um, either scantily clad um, or way too much exposure. And it's just part of their world now. And I don't know how you guys handle that, but I kept trying to have conversations, but I couldn't stop it mm-hmm. with my kids. Yeah. And I really feel like it's a, there's a couple parts to it. Like um, those connection conversations we talked about earlier Hopefully that you're having since they're little, but just moments to talk about what feels like more, like if you're thinking morally with this, what feels right, what doesn't. If you've got that twinge, it might not be something you're supposed to do or something you're supposed to see. And like having those kind of conversations for sure. Also talking about your future and your goals and how one literally, which is so sad, but very true, one bad choice, one pass on of one of those pictures and you're now a part of it. Now, just if, if you didn't get the picture taken, you didn't take the picture, you just received it and you sent it on, you are now an accomplice and somebody else is, you know, inappropriate picture being sent along and, and telling kids like one bad choice. <laughs> and and you're, that could be something that follows you all the way through. And what are your goals and how does this line up to it? Um, those are definitely conversations. And I think as parents, we have to have the reality that even if we have restrictions, limitations, boundaries on our use of technology, they can go to friends. They can go to the library. I mean the reality is is that we can't be with our kids when they're adolescents 24-7. So it really goes back to building that relationship, doing the hard work of parenting and instilling some of those values and continuing to talk about that and have those conversations. Okay. And let's talk about this. Let's talk about some of the rules that you have or that you know of that families have in terms of the use of technology. Renee, you talked about no cell phones in the car. A lot of parents seem like they do that. But okay. Now, that's my first time hearing that one. Yeah. I haven't heard that. So that's Just that one. you're not on it at the same time. Like, we're not all the kids are on their phones and no one's talking. That would okay. be... Yeah. And so for me, it's it's a dinner table. My boys know not to come to the dinner table with any piece of technology. Mm-hmm. First of all, my wife does not play that. So they know that. And the funny thing, my oldest son, for some reason, he likes to go shirtless. I don't know why I'm spilling everything. I've <laughs> got so, you know, my boys here, so I'm going to get in way, way too much trouble. But for some reason, this, he likes to just wear no shirt. And so my wife, is he knows not to even approach the dining room without his shirt on. So, But, um, Gene, what are some rules are, um, that you know that parents have or you may have about the use of technology? All of this is always going to be relative to the maturity level of the child. But I think, you know, one of the things to watch out for, we don't want to have kids having access to technology, for instance, in their bedroom with no one else around. That's a lot of times a recipe for problems. If you have a family computer, maybe it needs to be in a more public area. Do people have computers anymore? Mm-hmm. I seem like Or it's on a phone. Yeah. Or if you're having phone time, let's do it in the kitchen. Okay. I think that that I mean I I want it to be that way and I wish it was that way, but a lot of times I mean I'm I as a parent of two teenagers, schools are one to one. These kids have the computers. Everything they study is on that computer, everything. And so their textbooks are on there. Their 
their work is on there. And so they like to do their homework in their room, right? And and they do a good job of it. And so they're in there. And I I just, I mean, it's a part of our parenting dilemma right now is I want, he's doing a good job. He knows what space he likes to work in. He's got to be on that computer to get the work done. And, and how do we, so it's such a dilemma, but it's hard not to have them have that sometimes. I like the door open or an open door policy that I can walk in at any time. And I'd love to have you in your, if you're on there, I'd like to have you in the main space of the house. But I also think just telling kids to set boundaries, our pediatrician actually mentioned this, set boundaries that you have, you can put limits on when you can't get messages anymore. And so after 10 o'clock, no more messages. Kids sleeps being disrupted like all night long getting Instagram or messages. Parents too. And parents too, yeah. Exactly. You know, one of the rules in our household is that we park our phones at night yeah, and charge them. Idea. And we have and that. And that allows you a chance to check them too. And that's another policy just to say, I I will, I have to. I don't want to check them, but I, I can anytime. Right. And that randomly pick it up and look and see what's happening. Scary. Um, mm-hmm. It's different. It's a different way of having a parent. I, I ran into the same thing you're saying, Renee, that with the phones um, – because of the age of my kids, they didn't always have phones. But by by high school, when they're self-waking, they wanted their phone to be their alarm. And I think that's now the standard, even among some adults, that they're bringing their phone into their room and they're using it as their alarm. And I'm not a, I'm not a great advocate of that because every time it pings, you're curious. Um, or I have kids that will tell me, oh, I woke up and I rolled over and I wondered what anyone – I saw there was a Snapchat message, so I looked at it. But then they're awake at 4 a.m. instead of rolling over and going back to sleep. Um, and, and I, but I have adults that tell me that too. Um, I think it's just trying to help them understand, you know, sleep is sacred. You have to be able to sleep. You can't function if you can't sleep. Um, and trying to set some of those limits that you can turn that down, you can turn it off, or at least please put it on do not disturb until you're awake in the morning, not at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. Um, but I think it's a tough thing right now because it's standard and normative for people to walk their phones with them everywhere they go. But to me, the limit would be sleep for sure, mm-hmm. because that then messes up everything else. Now, how important is it for parents to keep up with the current technology and social media that their children are using or engaged with? That's important, right? Very. Uh, it's, it's changing essential. every day. <laughs> There's a, a specialist in our city, Stephen Smith, who speaks. To, he, he, his website's A Wired Family. I don't know if you've heard I've had him. him on the show yeah. before, yeah. And he is knows what those apps are. They're coming out by the day. And to have him come and speak to a group would be a great idea or just to connect to his A Wired Family website, awiredfamily.org, I think it is. And he's putting out there, what are these apps? You need to know about it. And he's done the research. That's one of his jobs. I think that's key for parents to keep informed. Okay, Jean? I just echo what Renee was sharing. I mean, I really don't have any use for an Instagram or Snapchat, but guess what? If I have kids... I better be on there and I have to have an awareness of what's going on. And in case you're just tuning in all morning long, we're talking about parenting. We're talking to three parenting experts. We're talking to Jean Blair. Jean is with the Family Nurturing Center. Renee Matson is a parenting coach with Child in Bloom. We're also speaking to our resident therapist, Thimbria Hess. She's a licensed family and marriage therapist. 
Coming up next, our expert panelists weigh in with advice for first-time parents of newborns, parents of special needs children, and parents in a blended family situation, and so much more. Remember to join the conversation. All you have to do is go to our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Head there now and like us there now. More on parenting as Sunday Morning Magazine continues right after this. Stay with us. More to come. More to come.